Hello there, I'm Justin, and welcome to today's episode of The Pickup Line. Um, Here we are in the midst of, what are we on, day three now of, well, for some day three, pretty significant lockdown, quarantine, stay-at-home time during the coronavirus uh, pandemic, and, you know, one day at a time, folks. Um, So hopefully you found some solace here in this little podcast that I've been doing for the past few weeks, and perhaps listening, and maybe finding some sort of stimulation and, and, and thought here. And as, as always, I would encourage folks to uh, call in, leave a message, uh, enter into the conversation. I would love to hear from you and post, uh, you know, and include your thoughts and ideas in the podcast. So please don't hesitate. If you've got the Anchor app, uh, call in, leave a message. I would love to hear from you. On today's episode, we're going to be looking at a very kind of zoomed in look at um, a little section from uh, Orality and Literacy by Walter Ong. So we're getting back to our discussion of orality and literacy today. Thank Thanks so much for tuning in. Let's get to it. She makes the sign of a teaspoon, he makes the sign of a wave. Poor boy changes clothes and he puts on aftershave to compensate for his ordinary shoes. She said, honey, take me dancing. So on page 74 of Orality and Literacy, Walter Ong has a section entitled Words Are Not Signs. Um, I was always interested in this concept. Uh, this is actually a concept that I do remember uh, a lot from my graduate school uh, English literature days, learning about this idea of signifiers and signs and what that meant and how language worked. I, I was always into that kind of thing. I, I think I, I was a linguist at heart, perhaps. But um, I'd just like to read a little bit of this section and, and talk about it a bit with you all. So Ong says, uh, Jacques Derrida has made the point that there is no linguistic sign before writing, and that was from 1976. But neither is there a linguistic sign after writing if the oral reference of the written text is adverted to. Though it releases unheard of potentials of the word, a textual visual representation of a word is not a real word, but a secondary modeling system. Thought is nested in speech, not in texts, all of which have their meanings through reference of the visible symbol to the world of sound. So, you know, as this whole book does, uh, it, 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 it centers itself in this notion of, of orality and what sound means and why it's so important and why it's so intrinsic. And it's becoming more and more clear uh, here that Ang, you know, is sort of re- is thinking about written language as sort of a distillation of a much more powerful, potent um, oral language. And we are starting to see some of that here, I think. Um, Ang says, what the reader is seeing on this page, referring to what I'm reading to you right now, um, are not real words, but coded symbols whereby a properly informed human being can evoke in his or her consciousness real words in actual or imagined sound. Uh, It is impossible for script to be more than marks on a surface unless it is used by a conscious human being as a cue to sounded words, real or imagined, directly or indirectly. How many of you, when you read something in your mind, not verbally, but just sort of read it to yourself, how many of you have kind of a voice uh, that you 
imagine in your brain uh, that you uh, like hear when you read in your mind? I, I do that. Um, I, I think it's usually my voice, um, but I'm not sure about that. Sometimes it, it varies. Depending, maybe depends on if I've heard the voice of, of the of the author or if I've been listening to some uh, music a lot. I sometimes imagine that, that speaking voice. So. I think Ong is correct here, and I think this is a really interesting point that we tend to, um, we tend to kind of want, we want uh, orality. I think our brains crave that. I think that's why we imagine or create a voice in our head when we are reading, um, because it's almost a desire to hear what we are seeing uh, out loud. Um, perhaps that's also why podcasting is popular, uh, because you get to hear instead of read. Um, and so I think there's something here. I think there's something important here to think about. Ong continues and says, Chirographic and typographic folk find it convincing to think of the word essentially a sound as a sign, because a sign refers primarily to something visually apprehended. Um, signum, which furnished us with the word sign, meant the standard that a unit of the Roman army carried aloft for visual identification. Um, etymologically, the object one follows... Uh, Proto-Indo-European root skew to follow. Um, so that's interesting where the word sign comes from, this sort of S-I-G-N-U-M, a signum or signum. Um, it was a, was a symbol, a sign, a, a banner that the Roman army carried to identify themselves. Uh, and on continues, though the Romans knew the alphabet, uh, the signum was not a lettered word, but some kind of pictorial design or image, such as, such as an eagle, for example, so they weren't uh, there weren't words. It didn't say Roman Army Unit One in letters on the sign. It was a picture of that uh, unit's standard or their symbol or their crest, if you will, uh, their image, eagle, wolf, whatever. Um, it was a sort of a visual iconographic representation of of the idea of that unit. So a sign. The feeling. For letter names, as labels or tags, was long in establishing itself, for primary orality lingered in residue, as will be seen here. Centuries after the invention of writing and even of print, as late as the European Renaissance, quite literate alchemists, using labels for their vials and boxes, tended to put on the labels not a written name, but iconographic signs, such as various signs of the zodiac, and shopkeepers identified their shops not with lettered words, but with iconographic symbols such as the ivy bush for a tavern, the barber's pole, the pawnbroker's three spheres. That's from, uh, if you want more on that, see Yates 1966 on iconographic labeling. I think we still see this practice today, you know, branding, right? Um, everything has a brand. Just think of, think of any popular chain, store, retail shop, restaurant. I guarantee you, your mind will conjure up the image of that brand immediately. If I say the word Nike, you immediately picture a swoosh. If I say the word McDonald's, you immediately picture the golden arches. So this is not something that's been lost. Uh, we certainly still practice this. These tags, on Ong continues, or labels, do not at all name what they refer to. The words Ivy Bush are not the word tavern. The word pole is not the word barber. Names were still words that moved through time. These quiescent, unspoken symbols were something else again. They were signs, as words are not. So Ong's point here is that words, the alphanumeric alphabet that we utilize to read with, those words, those combinations of random letters that denote sounds, 
are not signs. They are not iconographic symbols that represent ideas. They are not that. Um, the word tree in English, T-R-E-E, has no inherent tree-like qualities to it. The visual writing down of those four letters in that specific order in no way visually conjures the image of a tree. If someone who didn't understand English were to look at that, quote, symbology of a tree in that way, those four letters written out, they would in no way intuit that that word represented a tree. Uh, It doesn't. Uh, It's not a drawing of a tree. It's just four random letters that are connected together. Um, So I think that's that's an interesting idea to think about. Ong continues here by saying, Our complacency in thinking of words as signs is due to the tendency, perhaps, incipient in oral cultures, but clearly marked in chirographic cultures and far more marked in typographic and electronic cultures, to reduce all sensation and indeed all human experience to visual analogs. Sound is an event in time. And time marches on, marches on, um, relentlessly, with no stop or division. Time is seemingly tamed if we treat it spatially on a calendar or the face of a clock where we can make it appear as divided into separate units next to each other, but this also falsifies time. Real time has no divisions at all, but is uninterruptedly continuous. At midnight yesterday did not click over into today. At midnight yesterday did not click over into today. No one can find the exact point of midnight, and if it is not exact, how can it be midnight? And we have no experience of today as being next to yesterday, as it is represented on a calendar. Reduced to space, time seems more under control, but only seems to be for real. Indivisible time carries us to real death. Um, So, yeah, I, I mean, isn't there like a scientific aspect of the cycle of planets and gravity. I think there might be a little more. I might push back on on just a touch here. I'm no expert. I'm no scientist. I mean, I I, I like that kind of stuff. I've watched Cosmos about a thousand times with Neil deGrasse Tyson. But I mean, I think there is like a pretty set in stone gravitational computational uh, rotation of the moon and the planets and the sun uh, driven by gravity and by, you know, forces in the universe that dictate the passage of time. And so I, I don't know, maybe there is more, a little more there than the way that Ong portrays the idea of time. Although I do like his idea here that it goes back to that sort of notion of oneness, um, of everything being one and things not being as disconnected as humans in modern society try to make them. I think perhaps everyone is feeling that a little bit more right now as we are all disconnecting ourselves from one another in major ways and sort of starting to feel that uh, we need each other more. Um, 
Anyway, uh, Ong says in parentheses here, this is not to deny that spatial reconstructionism is immeasurably useful and technologically necessary, but only to say that its accomplishments are intellectually limited and can be deceiving. Similarly, we reduce sound to oscillograph patterns and to waves of certain lengths, which can be worked with by a deaf person who can have no knowledge of what the experience of sound is. We reduce sound script. We reduce sound to script and to the most radical of all scripts, the alphabet. So, you know, we're 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 with our technology and our evolution and all the things that we're doing. We are we are reducing. We're reductionist, right? We're taking this this uh, this thing that is immeasurable and and eternal sound timeless time is, is something that escapes time something that cannot be captured and controlled by time and we attempt to distill it to kind of reduce it into something that's more manageable more workable something that's more easily understood or that we can experience in a different way oral man is not so likely to think of words as signs uh, quiescence visual phenomena. Homer refers to them with the standard epitaph of winged words, which suggests evanescence, power, and freedom. Words are constantly moving, but by flight, which is a powerful form of movement, and one lifting the flyer free of the ordinary, gross, heavy, quote, objective world. So, interesting visuals there the idea of words flying away the power of flight the power to break free of i was just talking about gravity right uh flying is sort of a uh, a way to to break free the chains of gravity right to 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 transcend the scientific pull that that controls everything about existence um and to fly in the face of that and to say i'm gonna i'm gonna not be a part of that um so that's interesting Finally, on concludes this section by saying, In contending with Jean, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Derrida is, of course, quite correct in rejecting the persuasion that writing is no more than incidental to the spoken word, but to try to construct a logic of writing without investigation in depth of the orality out of which writing emerged and in which writing is permanently and in, in, inelcutably grounded is to limit one's understanding, although it does produce at the same time effects that are brilliantly intriguing, but also at times psychedelic, that is, due to sensory distortions. Freeing ourselves of chirographic and typographic bias in our understanding of language is probably more difficult than any of us can imagine, far more difficult, it would seem, than the, quote, deconstruction of literature, for this deconstruction remains a literary activity. And he says more will be said about this problem in treating the internalizing of technology in the next chapter. So, you know, here we are on the precipice in this argument of this idea that we have, if we want to understand what what writing means, what literacy means, but we have to understand what orality means. Um, You know, and for me, this is kind of an eye-opening moment for me in my own career. I'm a writing teacher. I've been teaching first-year writing courses in, at, at universities for 10 years. And I think, you know, intrinsically, I, I've believed that to reduce writing studies to the production of an alphanumeric essay, that has never felt right to me. Um, I've never been of the mind, even before reading this book, that the only way to do writing, the only way to conceive of writing is to do it in this one very... Uh, situational, one very um, specific genre confining way. That is the sort of five paragraph essay researched academic piece. I've never, I've never felt at home teaching students that. Of course, we 
do work around that because that's the expectation of genre for most of academia. But I always have strived to offer my students other avenues through which to understand what writing is um, and to understand sort of the history uh, that that writing involves um, and where it came from and what else it is, um, expanding their thinking about what writing, how it functions and what rhetoric means, um, thinking about texts in all kinds of different ways as video games, podcasts, multimedia projects, multimodal websites, um, you know, uh, jQuery, uh, interactive uh, essays from the New York Times, all of these things. It's, writing is, is all of that. It's not just one thing. And so I, I'm, I'm with Ong here, but it's, it's really shocking that I've not incorporated this text into my own pedagogy. And I'm so excited to be able to do that now. I think this chapter in particular is really interesting. Um, and I, I really enjoyed that little section about this idea of, of signs and the way that language and and is not writing is not a, is not are not signs words are not signs um pictures are signs iconogra- iconography are signs um words however are not so we'll pick this up some more on the next episode um and we'll see where it goes the next section of this book is we're going to be moving into chapter four writing restructures consciousness so that sounds amazing And hopefully we'll get to discuss that on the next episode of The Pickup Line. As always, please call in, leave a message. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you feel like words are signs? Do you have any examples of this? Um, Do we have any uh, words in English in my native language that are more sign-based, where the word itself looks like the thing that it represents? I don't know. Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and I will see you next time on The Pickup Line.